I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to the Brand is Female podcast. Every week, I speak with women changemakers and founders who are redefining the rules of female leadership. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandiesfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Today, we air the second part of our special episode for World Contraception Day. So based on what you're saying, you know, it sounds like there's still there's still stigma that you're seeing it uh, day in and day out in, in your work. Uh, so question for Frédéric, how do you think we can reverse that stigma and, and as Ashley's suggesting, normalize having, you know, what, uh, daily conversations around sex and around contraception and sexual education in general? Well, I wanted to, to jump in and nerd out and say that there's actually a term that describes this approach, which is promiscuity propaganda. Uh, it's <laughs> myths that exist around the fact that um, like a, a lobby group of anti-sex ed campaigners that come from the U.S. started to per- perpetuate that myth that the more we talk about sexuality will uh, will lead to young people having sex earlier and riskier sex when, when the evidence is very clear that quite the opposite happened, as, as you described. Uh, and I, I think that's it's also worth mentioning that um, what, what Diane and, and, uh, and Ashley are describing unfortunately finds itself in the sex ed curricula that exists across Canada. So um, youth sexuality is treated as suspect and dangerous and needing to be controlled. And so what young people are are hearing in their classrooms, and and this comes from an analysis that we did of all the curricula that that exists currently in Canada, is that that's the, the, the underlying message of a lot of the teachings. You are to be controlled. This is dangerous. If you have sex, you'll burst into flames and also have chlamydia and also be pregnant. Uh, and so, so it, it creates this or perpetuate this culture where it's very shameful to talk about sexuality. It's scary. It's to be controlled. It's also detached from their own experiences where they're curious, they're, you know, experiencing desire. And so they, they block out what adults are trying to say, even though we, you know, a lot of us have very good intentions. We want them to be safe. We don't want them to experience abuse. We don't want them to experience unintended consequences of, of sexuality. Uh, we want them to have the information that they need to, to be safe, but we do it in a way that completely goes against the pedagogy that would be effective. So we are not reaching them where they're at and what they're, we're not talking about what interests them. And we talk about youth sexuality as something that is dangerous and that they should be ashamed of. And we've certainly seen that Action Canada conducted several focus groups across the country with, with young people to understand their you know, knowledge of, of STBBI, so sexually transmitted, transmitted infections, um, and also just sexual health generally. The knowledge is very, very low and there's a, a high level of stigma around sexuality. Like people will think I'm a bad person if I have an STI, they're going to think I'm a bad person if anything happens while I have sex, but also I want to have sex and I will have sex and I have sex. And so it creates this this zone where where people don't have access to the information they need or the resources they need. And so I I think, again, it's it's key that we, we modernize our sex ed. We talk to young people about what interests them and what is of interest to them in a way that is relevant uh, and that we, we do so in an equitable way. 
Ashley wants to add something. Well, I always find it interesting. Um, you know, our entire culture talks about sex in terms of like um, self-control um, and, and moralizing around what, what sexual activity is acceptable and what isn't. Um, and we very infrequently focus on the fact that sex is a biological imperative, uh, that we're all born with an innate sexual drive um, because we are biological beings and, and the goal in biology is to spread your genes. Um, we can choose not to do that because we have higher intelligence and technology. But um, the idea that kids won't know about sex if we just don't talk about it, they will know about it because they will start to notice um, they're interested sexually in, in people around them or or things that uh, that they find are desirable or, or um, you know, sexually attractive without any words to describe it, without anybody sort of talking about this is what we call this and, and this is how you do it or don't do it, it, it's biologically driven. And so I think we kind of lose sight of that sometimes when we get into, you know, all of the other higher order things that we want to talk about. But kids know what sex is innately, just because just the way that rabbits do and and cats and dogs and you know everyone else, like nobody needed to teach your dog how to have sex and reproduce uh they just knew how to do that um and and we are also capable <laughs> at that basic level of understanding what sex is um and and having that desire to have it uh and so the idea that by putting words to it um you know somehow opens a door that otherwise wasn't open um, is really ridiculous when you just think of it in basic biological terms. Absolutely true. And we have a hyper-sexualized society as well, where anyone who's exposed and all of us are exposed to movies and TV and, and social media. Uh, so it's, it's pretty hard to, to ignore. Um, a question around access to contraception. Um, how, is, how easy is it in Canada um, and, and we know the reality is not necessarily the same in every province. Um, and what impact does that have on young people's use of contraception? Uh, whoever wants to go first on this one. I may. Uh, you know, we used to have a two big jar in the in the teen clinic in my hospital in the nurse's office. And one was full of condoms. The other one was full of candy. So guess what? The one with condoms was always empty. We had to fill it in, fill it in, fill it in, because when you give the condoms to young people, they use them. You know, they may play with it once, but then after they realize that it's free, <laughs> they need them, so they're going to use it. So I think that we still have so much to do. In France last year, I think, well, it was during the COVID anyway, they decided that all the oral contraceptive pills will be free for 25 and younger. Mm -hmm. and I think this is the way to go. Because it's it's a burden because, you know, it's really, really, really expensive. And unfortunately, you know, there's no way to be the best parent ever. You know, sometimes parents try to teach their kids to have a little budget and because they don't have any money. But if you have to pay your pill, it's uh, it's very expensive. You're going to pay your cell phone before your pill. And, and this is when you have a, a problem to afford contraception. So it's really expensive. And, and especially we know that, uh, especially for young people who don't want to have a pregnancy, sometimes the most effective uh, 
uh, method will be the, the, the long-term one, and those ones are very, very expensive. So we need to find a way to make it more available, even if there's plans and stuff that you can try with the help of Frederick to, to have access when you need it. You can wait for six months. So, and this is why, you know, in having this conversation is, you know, you're not ready, good. So what are you going to do? How are you going to be able to provide? Where are you going to get a prescription? And then, you know, if you are under your parents' insurance plan, they will find out. So it, it, it's, it's a real burden. And, and we have to do more for for young people. And and it's because it's it's far from being free. Mm. And actually, I just want to throw in a stat um, it, it, that in Canada, it's, it's one out of six women who does not use contraception. Uh, so you're explaining that it's hard to get uh, our hands on, on contraception as, as young people. Um, and, you know, how, how what are the factors that explain this? And you've highlighted some of them. So uh, Frederick and Ashley, I'll let you go next. Yeah, I was going to agree. I mean, cost is definitely a barrier to access. Um, but another barrier that is just getting worse with time is just access to the healthcare system. Um, and as we know, uh, primary care across the country is in crisis um, with fewer and fewer people having access to a primary care provider like the family doctor or nurse practitioner. And then access to specialized care is also, um, you know, very challenging and, and, you know, may vary from location to location within the country, but um, nobody really has very easy access. Like it's very difficult for anybody to sort of call somebody up same day, get an appointment, get a prescription for an IUD and have an IUD placed mm -hmm. um, in a same day visit. Like that's, that's almost impossible. Um, and that has to do with system factors in our healthcare system. There's no reason why somebody shouldn't be able to, you know, find out about an IUD, somebody tells them about it, be able to access a healthcare provider who can provide them with the information about it that they need, if they choose to go ahead with it, to be able to have it placed that day. There's, there's no um, medical reason why that process needs to be drawn out. But in many situations, because of the healthcare system failings, um, it is drawn out. It's hard to get in to see somebody. People are trying to get into walk-in clinics. They're going to virtual walk-in clinics um, just to be referred to somebody who might be a specialist like myself who might have a wait list that's months long to get into somebody to talk about birth control methods. Mm -hmm. um, and then there may be unnecessary obstacles like prescription refills and that type of thing where, mm -hmm. you know, there's no reason why if somebody is using a very safe method that they need to go back and refill their prescription every three months. Give them a full year supply. If, they, if they're if they doing well on that method and they want to continue using it, um, there's just no reason <laughs> to put these obstacles in place that just make it more and more difficult. And those are systemic issues that have nothing to do with medical reasons um, that people shouldn't be able to access things. Um, there's a lot of gatekeeping that takes place. Um, and, and I think that a lot of it, what I'm seeing in, in my community and in my province, and I know this is, is nationwide, is just the catastrophic challenge in accessing primary care. Um, and so many people just don't have access even to, to the front door, you know, to get their foot in the door, to talk to somebody about a birth control method, let alone get a prescription or fill the prescription or see somebody who can, you know, insert a long acting method for them or what have you. 
um, is just even having access to a healthcare provider in the first place. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the more effective methods, particularly the long-acting methods, so we're talking about the um, subdermal implant or the intrauterine contraceptive devices, require the most intensive access to the healthcare system. So not only do they require somebody to do the counseling and prescribing, but somebody actually to be able to place those devices uh, so that people can use them. Uh, And so cost is a huge issue, but there are systemic barriers in our healthcare system that are making it much more difficult for people as well. Mm. Frédérique, I see you shaking your head a lot. Oh, my brain is going in all sorts of directions in terms of of what uh, what could be part of this conversation. This is a conversation that could last days. Um, so first I, you know, it's, it's important to note that Canada is the only country that has a universal healthcare system, but no pharmacare, uh, that goes along with it. And so this is something that hopefully will be remedied soon. This is a political moment that is important to that, uh, because a lot of people fall through the crack as, as, you know, uh, Ashley and Diane have described, uh, some people may be able to access, an entrance plan, or there may be like a federal or provincial program that uh, facilitates access to to certain methods of contraception. But there's a a significant number that um, can't access either because they are, uh, you know, unemployed or, uh, you know, underemployed or in the service industry. And and so, and people who are low income, but not enough to be part of the program. And so making contraception even more of a burden if they're low income. And so uh, the pharmacare uh, push is, is very important. And it's very important that every method is included in that coverage. And so there's this really amazing piece of uh, study and report from the SOGC that we use all the time where it lists the, the kind of contraceptions that are privileged by people in Canada. And so uh, like, I don't remember the exact order, but it's it's the pill, it's the condom, and it's the pull-out method. And so they are the cheapest three. Mm. Not the ones that are the most effective or yeah. that are preferred by people, but they are the cheapest ones. Uh, and so we need to make sure that people actually have options that are not dictated by cost. And so if we see that with the pharmacare announcement that we're hoping to, to have in the, in the spring of 2023, that contraception will be uh, prioritize and that it won't just cover a few options that may work for some, but not for others. And then force some people to take methods that may not be the ones that they wanted because those are the ones that are covered. And this is important because we also have to contend with a history of certain populations being forced to use some contraception that we must talk about more openly. So in the context of a Canadian reckoning with forced sterilization, especially of Indigenous and disabled communities, the same is true for young racialized women or young disabled women, young women with uh, cognitive disabilities that are forced to use long-acting contraception at disproportionate rates. I understand why like people may want to be protective of people and make sure that they have the best access, but but we, there's also an argument to be made in terms of bodily autonomy that all options are on the table mm-hmm. for better contraceptive care, for people to truly have a choice that is not dictated by what's available. And so, uh, you know, this is an important and timely conversation. The announcement is coming. This is something that people in Canada should be monitoring very closely that when we get a pharmacare announcement, that it covers every option possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very important point you make. 
This season of The Brightest Female is made possible with the support of TD Women in Enterprise, and they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD services for women in business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. And you brought up, you know, the, the most popular methods of contraception. And we know that out of women who use contraceptions, about half who use condoms. And as you brought up, not always the, the safest or preferred method. Um, what are other methods available today? And with technology, there's more and more uh, subdermal implants were mentioned, I think, by Ashley. Um, but I also want to talk about the abortion pill. And we hear a lot about it because of what's going on south of our border. Um, in Canada, what is the reality with other contraception methods? And I'd also like to hear your views on the abortion pill. Is it, you know, where and when to use it? And is it uh, widely accessible in Canada? So maybe we'll go with Ashley first on this one. Sure, I'll take a crack at that one. <laughs> um so in terms of the abortion pill, so I think, first of all, it's very important to distinguish because there's a lot of confusion. Um, what is an abortion pill versus what is a postcoital or emergency contraceptive pill? Because those are two different, like entirely different things used for entirely different purposes, right. um, but often get conflated with one another. So um, there are two main um oral types of emergency contraceptives. So these are contraceptive pills that you can take within um, three to five days after intercourse, um, whether you had intercourse that was unprotected um, for any reason or, or because the protection that you tried to use failed, like a condom broke or slipped or something like that. Um, and so there are two main types of those. They are hormonal medications that interfere in ovulation. They do not stimulate an abortion. They prevent a pregnancy from occurring in the first place by interfering in the ability of the ovary to release an egg. Um, and so that, that's a completely separate issue uh, from the abortion pill. I should mention those emergency contraceptives, one type is available without a prescription in most places. Um, you can go to the pharmacy and get that. Uh, sometimes it's held behind the counter um, just because of loss prevention actually. Uh, apparently it's a popular thing for people to steal. So you may need to ask the pharmacist, but you don't need a prescription. Um, the other emergency contraceptive, which is ever so slightly more effective, um, is available with a prescription. I'm not sure if it's okay to use brand names for those products, but um, the, the one available without a prescription is a medication called levonorgestrel. The most common brand name is Plan B. Uh, and then the second one is a medication called Eulopristal Acetate, 30 milligrams, and the brand name for that is Ella, and that's the one that requires a prescription. So separate issue entirely from the abortion pill. So the abortion pill that we have available in Canada is marketed under the brand name Mifigimizo. And to call it an abortion pill is actually a slightly a misnomer because it's actually two medications uh, that you need to take together in order to end a pregnancy. So this is not an emergency contraceptive. This is in the setting where a pregnancy has established itself. Um, and within the first uh, nine to 10 weeks um, of that pregnancy, you can take these two medications in combination to actually end that pregnancy. Um, the first medication interferes in the ability of the pregnancy to continue to reproduce. So at the cellular level, the cells that need to reproduce to form the placenta and the embryo. 
Um, and the second medication is a medication that induces the uterus to expel um, the pregnancy contents. Um, and so those are completely separate issues. And I always just like to clarify it. That was a bit Thank long. I apologize. Um, now, in terms of access to medical abortion in Canada, I do think that has improved since the time that Mifigamiza was approved in Canada. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Like, I believe it was approved in 2000. And I want to say 15, but <laughs> I might not be right about that. Um, 17. Was it 17? 17. Okay, sorry about that. Um, and uh, so it has expanded access in some areas because more people are able to provide this. So you're more likely to be able to access medical abortion as compared to surgical abortion services, um, you know, from a family doctor or a nurse practitioner or even an obstetrician gynecologist in your community um, rather than having to travel to a center that provides surgical abortion care. Um, but it hasn't been the panacea that we had hoped. I think we had hoped that having um, more ready access to medical abortion would mean that it would be uh, readily available in rural and remote areas and just, you know, really easy to access. And, and it still is a bit challenging um, to find a provider who has um, the knowledge and skill to provide that care um, and then, you know, to actually go through the steps of accessing that provider and accessing the medication itself. Mm -hmm. um, so it hasn't um, solved the issue of abortion access, but I do think it has been helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, it certainly hasn't solved the issue of later abortion access. So as I said, typically used up to nine or 10 weeks of gestation, um, but not all abortions take place quite that early in pregnancy. So there is still a need for surgical abortion services. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say, um, I always find it a, a difficult line to walk when I counsel patients about condom use, because we were just talking a minute ago about how maybe that's not the best contraceptive method. Um, and that's true in terms of preventing pregnancy. It has a relatively high failure rate compared to other methods, approximately 15%. Um, but I always counsel my patients, you still need to use condoms because it's the best method of preventing sexually transmitted infections. And it's a challenging conversation to have with people because you're saying on one hand, it's not good enough. And on the other hand, you still need to use it religiously. Um, and so it, it does make for a difficult conversation. But I think that we need to be able to have those discussions with people and explain you know, you can use it for both things. Um, it's the best at one thing and it's not the best at the other. Mm, very good point, Frédéric. I wanted to apologize because Ashley was right. It was approved by Health Canada in 2015, but hit the market in Canada in 2017. Yeah, it wasn't marketed until uh, yeah. There you go. Thank you. And, and I... It, there's also an important thing to say that it has, there's some studies that are going on out of UBC uh, in terms of the rollout of Mifigamiso in the country that are very, very interesting in terms of their, the impact of uh, the, the, the coming of this, this product on the market in Canada. So, uh, you know, the hope was to address persistent barriers to abortion care in Canada and, and, and really to improve access, especially in rural and remote communities where uh, having a primary care provider being able to prescribe uh, the abortion pill or mifigamiso would 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 alleviate um, uh, some of the challenges that people face having to travel out of their own communities at their own expense. And so, and it is it is in fact happening. And so we're seeing that in Canada, you know, the study at this point has results for BC and Ontario. There was a 12-fold increase in the number of abortion providers in Ontario between 2019 and, and now, uh, where in the past there were about 80 abortion providers in the province, and now there's over 1,000. And most of them are primary care providers who were approached by one patient who needed that service and then suddenly were 
uh, motivated and and um, build their capacity to offer it offer it to all of their patients. And so, it does uh, make a difference to have it. But as Ashley pointed out, of course, uh, this is for the first first weeks of pregnancy. Uh, we still need to build the capacity of offering later care in Canada, especially as we see what's going on in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll just wrap it because I know pretty much what is the situation in Canada because we have still so much work to do. <laughs> We're happy for what has been done, but there is a lot to do, especially in the eastern Canada where access to everything is more than complicated. But even in Quebec, where abortion has been, you know, easy to get for years, the medical abortion is not picking up for many reasons. You know, College of Physicians made it mandatory to have an ultrasound and then GP were not prescribing it when because they were afraid that the women may have a miscarriage without resources. Well, I'm sorry, in every hospital in Canada, someone can do a DNC. It's, you know, it's a no burden, but we have to, you know, flip all these tones and and just give the right answer and reassure women that it's been used everywhere in Europe for years and it's been doing well and it's it has to move on in Canada but we're on it so we're, we're going to make it happen it has been used in the world for over 30 yeah. years in over 60 countries millions of doses have been uh, given this is the uh, the world class treatment for medical abortion according to the world health organization this is something that you know was late to come to canada but is not new to the world and so this is definitely something to celebrate uh, because Abortion should be part of the practice of primary health care providers, nurse practitioners, midwives. We saw this amazing development in Quebec where midwives now in their scope of practice can uh, prescribe medical abortion and um, family doctors and anyone who's on the front lines should be able to integrate abortion care within their practice. Mm -hmm. Well, we still have uh, some work ahead of us, but thank you for recapping. And just in closing, what's a good place for anyone looking for more information about contraception? Uh, And I'm guessing, uh, you know, you'll have a few websites you want to mention, but what's a good place to start? (laughs) Mysexuality.ca. It's it's an old one, but it's always alive. The, all the information is there, but I'm pretty sure that Frédéric has tons of recommendations <laughs> to give us as well. And actually what we'll do, Frédéric, we can guess, we can get a list and we'll paste yeah. it in episode notes for anybody who's looking for more. But what's your yes. I, I invite everyone to visit Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights. We have a sexual health information hub where we put resources for healthcare providers, uh, for the public about Every topic that we can think of when we're thinking of sexual health and wellness, like going from uh, sex ed related topics, healthy relationships, healthy sexuality to contraception. Contraception is our most popular page, by the way, Uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, medical abortion, surgical abortion and all the topics that people have questions about. And then uh, a lot of uh, sexual health centers across the country have put a lot of time and resources to develop amazing web pages, resources, videos, YouTube channels. You know, there's some of the sexual health centers in the Maritimes that have award-winning TikTok channels. And so this is definitely something that we can build a list uh, for uh, everyone who will listen to this podcast to make sure that they have access to the best information possible. Perfect. Wonderful. 
I just wanted to echo, echo sexandu.ca. So it's spelled S-E-X-A-N-D-U.ca. And it's a plan.ca. So sexandu has a number of um, topics that you can click through, including contraception, but also sexually transmitted infections and a number of other things. It's a plan is a little bit more of an interactive um, format where you can put in sort of what your priorities are in terms of a contraceptive method, and it will make some suggestions in terms of types of contraceptive methods that might interest you. Um, and so those are both um, hosted by the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada. And I always uh, recommend those to my patients because they're not um, you know, influenced by a drug company or somebody who's trying to sell you something or anything like that. Um, it's just non-biased information by contraceptive experts. Um, and so that those are the two that I usually direct my patients to, but I'll start sending them to Action Canada as well, because uh, it sounds like there's lots of great info on there as well. Wonderful. And of course, speaking to our family doctor and finding one if we don't have one, always, uh, always a good idea. So thank you so much, ladies. It was wonderful uh, hearing more about these issues. Um, and thank you for all your insights. Uh, and thank you so much for making time for this conversation today. Thanks. It was a real pleasure. It was. What a great conversation and great panel of, of people to be in conversation with. Thank you. I think we'll need a follow-up conversation because lots still to be to be discussed. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review wherever that is possible. Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Yeah.